The joke goes of a dear single lady from church. We'll call her Susie. Susie was known for speaking her mind, and she also knew everything about everyone without ever having to talk to them. She had a knack, you could say. One day, Susie noticed Ted's truck was across the street from the bar, and it was there all day. And it was there all night. Even the next morning, it was still there. And when she saw Ted in church, she made sure to tell him that he shouldn't drink so much. People might make assumptions. Ted graciously heard her out and said nothing. That night, he parked his truck in Susie's driveway and walked home. I don't know what Susie assumed the next morning when she saw Ted's truck, but I'm guessing she wasn't too thrilled. Assumptions get us into trouble, but we all do it, don't we? We are always making assumptions because it's easier to make assumptions when you don't know the full story. Immediately when you see someone, you begin to create a narrative or a story of their life without ever having to talk to them. We look at them. We see what they are doing. We see where they live, what they look like, or how they talk, and immediately we put together a pretty comprehensive outline of their story of their life. Sometimes we're right, or at least that's what we ourselves so we don't have to ever worry about talking to that person. The truth is we have no idea. We don't know where that person is coming from, where they are going, or what they're going through in their life, and so many other things. We just don't know their story. Rather than sit down and ask them about it, though, we'd rather fill in the blanks with, blank, with assumptions. It's easier. It takes less work. And it sure makes us feel good about ourselves when we can separate us and them. But assumptions get us into trouble. In John chapter 7, there were assumptions being made of Jesus. False assumptions that had eternal consequences. There was a celebration that was going on in Jerusalem. It was the Feast of Tabernacles, or also known as the Feast of Booths. Devout Jews had gathered in Jerusalem. and They were tenting out together in booths. It was a week-long celebration, and the purpose of this celebration was to remember God's provision while the Israelites wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Though it was a frustrating time for the Israelites, and they did more more than their fair share of grumbling and complaining, yet they still lacked nothing. Not even their sandals wore out for those 40 years. Every year they would interrupt their lives to remember and celebrate God's goodness. And I say interrupt their lives, but that's a little misleading. Their lives revolved around the calendar that God had for them. And so they would go and they would celebrate this feast. And this year was no different until it was. Something happened at this feast that hadn't happened before. And it was strange because everything seemed to be pointing to a certain truth. A certain truth that contradicted their assumptions. I'll invite you to open your Bibles with me to John chapter 7, and I'll be reading verses 1 through 39, and since it's longer, I won't ask you to stand. I'll let you stay seated for the reading. But as I read this passage, look for the assumptions that people make about Jesus, and then see how Jesus answers and critiques and speaks reality to their assumptions. John chapter 7, beginning at verse 1, I'm again reading in Jesus' name. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was near. 
And therefore his brothers said to him, Leave here and go into Judea, so that your disciples also may see your works, which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. So Jesus said to them, My time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast, because my time has not yet fully come. Having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and saying, Where is he? There was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying, He's a good man. And others were saying, No, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. But when it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. The Jews then were astonished, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? So Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but him who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him He is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one deed, and you all marvel. For this reason Moses has given you circumcision, not because it's from Moses, but from the fathers. And on the Sabbath you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. So some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, Is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? Look, he is speaking publicly, and they are saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? However, we know where this man is from. But whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. Then Jesus cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, You both know me and know where I am from, and I have not come of myself. But he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to seize him, and no man laid his hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. But many of the crowd believed in him, and they were saying, When the Christ comes... He will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. Therefore Jesus said, For a little while longer I am with you, and then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me, and and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come. The Jews then said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? He is not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? What is the statement that he said? You will seek me and will not find me, and where I am you cannot come. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit 
whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Father God, these are your words, and your word is truth. We pray that you would sanctify us in your truth this morning, that you would help us to see you, that you would reveal to us our assumptions about the Savior. And Lord, that we wouldn't have assumptions, but that we would know what your word says and believe in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As John records this event, he notes something in verse 1. Jesus is intentionally taking a different route here. They're going down to Jerusalem, but he's avoiding Judea. Why is it that he avoids Judea? Because there's a group of people that would rather Jesus be dead, and they were seeking to kill him. Even his own brothers didn't believe in him, but they tell him to go to Judea and to show his disciples all the wonderful works that he is doing. They think that he's out to make a name for himself. His brothers give the impression that they don't believe Jesus. They really want He's just out making a name for himself. They don't believe that he's the Messiah. He can't be. He's their brother. And they tell him to go, to show himself to the world. And Jesus responds to his brothers and he tells them that now is not the time. He tells them to go on ahead, to go to the feast without him and leave him behind. But then Jesus also heads for the feast a little later in secret. And when he gets to the feast, he notices that people seem to be looking for him. And he gets there halfway through this week-long feast. And in verse 12, the people start an argument about Jesus. Is he a good man? Or is he a wicked man who leads people astray? The jury seems to be out. There were those who were convinced one way and those who were convinced of another. And yet they wouldn't openly speak about him. They wouldn't talk about him because they feared the Jews. There were people out to kill him. They were afraid of the growing group that wanted Jesus dead. What reason did they have to want Jesus dead? Jesus answers that question for us in verse 7. He says, The world hates me because I testify of it, that its deeds are evil. There were plenty of worldly Jews whose deeds were evil, and Jesus reveals this wickedness of their own hearts to them. Their hearts were in the world, not on the Savior. And their hearts were evil. Jews whose deeds were evil. They didn't look like it. And they could talk the jargon and follow the rituals just like the best of them. But Jesus sees through all that and he sees through to their hearts. He sees that their hearts aren't in it. That their hearts, they don't believe in the Messiah. They don't believe in him. Jesus never sugarcoated the truth for them. He reveals to them their wicked hearts and shows them that in spite of all of their actions and all of their deeds and all of their beliefs, their hearts were lost and condemned and they themselves were wicked. Assumptions continue in the text. The Jews had a hard time reconciling the fact that Jesus knew so much. How could he know so much when he never went through their training program? And they assume that he has a demon when he reads the intent of their hidden hearts. After all, it's easier to call Jesus demon-possessed than it is to recognize with the own wickedness that resides in our own hearts, isn't it? It's easier to call Jesus demon-possessed than to recognize that my heart wants Jesus dead so it can do whatever it is that I want to do. They assume that their leaders would be able to recognize that the Messiah 
of the, they'd recognize the Messiah when he comes here. But here's this man, here's Jesus teaching in the temple during this celebration, and they're not doing anything about it. Even though they recognize that he's pretty smart, that they still hold to the assumptions of their leaders that this man cannot be the Messiah. We all have our assumptions about Jesus, don't we? Some of them are informed by Scripture, but many of them are based on our own thoughts, our own ideas, and our own reasoning. We like to think of Jesus as a kind man, a man who did a lot of good, a lot of healing when he was walking here on this earth. And we take those truths and, and we assume that Jesus came to give us a comfortable life, a life free of pain, a life free of suffering, a life that provides for all of our earthly needs. After all, he provided manna in the wilderness, didn't he? And their sandals didn't run out. He provided water for them. And we look back to all these things and we say, Jesus came to provide all of these things for me. Jesus came to give me a comfortable life. We like to think of Jesus as our example and our role model. And that if we and if everybody else in this world would just act like Jesus and just be kind like Jesus was kind, that the world would be so much better place. And we like to think that we don't have to be such sticklers on rules and laws. I mean, even Jesus broke those, didn't he? We don't have to do that because Jesus came. And so how we live doesn't really matter, at least not every day. Each one of those assumptions contain a bit of truth, just enough to be dangerous. Enough that our own assumptions take it and run with it and they lead us to a false conclusion. And they all share the same problem here that not one of these assumptions, not one of these conclusions account for the evil and worldly hearts that exist in every man and every woman that exists in you, that exists in me. So who do we listen to? And who do we believe? And who do we follow? It's at this point that we come to a crossroads of sorts. How are we to deal with all of our wretched evil deeds? Or, or are they even wretched to begin with? The world says, you're doing great, you're doing fine. And I look at myself and I say, oh, I'm doing pretty good today. How do I reconcile the wicked heart that resides within me? How do we deal with it? Can we speak up? Is it safe? What will happen if I expose it for what it really is? Fear keeps us from speaking openly about our own worldliness, about our own wretchedness, and about our own evil deeds. We assume we're safe if we don't open up. We assume nobody will know. Yet Jesus sees through it. He sees through it, and he knows it, and he speaks to it. And into our situations, Christ comes and he speaks reality to us. I mentioned earlier that Jesus interrupted this Feast of Booths, but do you remember why they were celebrating it? What was the purpose of this celebration? What was the purpose of this feast? They were gathering to remember God's provision in the past, as well as his provision right now in the present and promise and trusting in God's provision in the future. And here in this feast, God has provided for his people once again, this time in Jesus, the true bread of heaven, this time in Jesus, the living water. And the first recorded words of Jesus at this feast are a defense of what he speaks. 
Jesus says, I'm not here to build up my kingdom. I'm not here to promote myself. I'm not here on my own authority. But I have been sent here. And the message I speak isn't my own message, but it's the message that the Father has declared to give to you through me. See, God, is, God the Father is speaking through his Son, Jesus Christ, here to the masses. His teaching isn't different from what the Old Testament scriptures all pointed to. Salvation through the Messiah, the provision of God. One commentator writes, and he acknowledges this, he says, Before the coming of Jesus, this faith was to believe the promises concerning him. And after his coming, this faith is to believe the fulfillment of these promises in Jesus, showing that all of Scripture culminates here in Christ. And the Jews gathered at that feast that day had to wrestle with this reality. The fulfillment of this feast is here. Who is he? Is he a good man? Or is he a man who leads people astray? Is he the Son of God? Is he a messenger sent of God? Is he a good teacher? How can he be smart if he doesn't know the things that we were taught in our own synagogues and temples? They have their assumptions that are bristling up against reality. How will it resolve? This will of God here that is spoken about in our text, this will of God that Jesus speaks is of faith. The will of God is for salvation for every person in this world, that they would receive him by faith and be saved. And this will of God is also the work of God. And John writes, this is the will of my Father, that you believe in him, that God is the one who does this work. And yet there's still here in this text the call to believe, to believe these words that the Father has spoken through the Son, to believe these promises that Christ was in fact fulfilling here in this, in this feast, to believe the promises that the Son came to fulfill. This feast was indeed a reason for celebrating Jesus mentions here that he isn't out to seek glory for himself, but he is here to do the Father's will and to bring glory to his Father, to hallow his Father's name, and in doing so, to call sinners to repentance and faith and to bring many sons to glory. Jesus goes on to correct the assumptions the people made based on his appearances in verses 21 through 24. He says, don't judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Jesus had a reputation, kind of a little bit of a rebel rouser, wasn't he? He's always seeming to break the rules, breaking the Sabbath. But here he shows that he is only fulfilling the law. Just like everyone who was circumcised on the eighth day, even when it landed on the Sabbath day. Jesus healed on the Sabbath. And in all appearances to man, it seems that he broke the Sabbath. What was it that he was doing on the Sabbath? He makes the entire man well. Sure, he makes the man to walk, the blind to see, but he, he makes the whole person well. He restores them to his Father. He forgives their sins, and he creates faith in them. He even makes worldly hearts well. He cleanses and renews wicked hearts. And this is, again, the providence of God. Something we could never do on our own, but something that God has provided for us through his son, Jesus Christ. Another reason for which to feast and to celebrate and to remember. And God was fulfilling this feast here before their very eyes. God is providing new hearts. After the people discuss this truth amongst themselves and wondering about Jesus' origin, they, they cry, Jesus cries out in verse 20 out and he says, 
you both know me. You know where I'm from. You know my history. You've seen me fulfilling scripture. The one who sent me is true. It's he that you don't know. But I know him because I am from him. And he sent me to proclaim this message to you. Jesus boldly cries out that he wasn't here on his own initiative to build a name for himself, to build a kingdom for himself. But he was here because God the Father had sent him. He was here because God was yet again providing for his people. And verse 30 reveals how most of the crowd responded. They wanted to seize him. They wanted to get rid of him. But there's another group, another group mentioned in verse 31. This group who finally seems to get it. This group who finally understands what's going on. This group who finally understands and knows the Father. To understand what Jesus is saying. And this group believes in him. They believe in Jesus and they ask the question, what more could the Messiah do than what Jesus has come to do? Jesus has done. Open your eyes and see how Christ has fulfilled scripture. Jesus is the Messiah. It's obvious, it's clear, it's plain as day. Yet the people still blinded by their assumptions heard the crowds and they went to take action. They sent officers to seize him, to silence him. Jesus leaves them with a cryptic message for them to mull over in their minds. John mentions in verse 37, and so he leaves. And they think about it. What does Jesus mean when he says this truth? And the next day, John mentions in verse 37 that it's the last day of the feast. And the last day of this feast was the culmination, the greatest day of this celebration. And on this day, the priest would gather a pitcher of water and would pour it out as an offering, quoting from Isaiah 12, verse 3, which says this, Therefore you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. This is what the priest is doing at the culmination of this feast, pouring out this water, saying one day people will draw from the springs of salvation. But listen to the context of Isaiah chapter 12. Then you will say on that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for although you were angry with me, your anger has turned away and you comfort me. Remember again, why were these Israelites wandering in the desert? Because of judgment. They rebelled against the Lord and so they couldn't go straight to the promised land. God was angry with them. Here he says, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. And in that day, you will say, give thanks to the Lord, call on his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, make them remember that his name is exalted. Praise the Lord in song, for he has done excellent things. This was the day that Jesus would come to make known his deeds among the peoples. As he cries out his message, if anyone is thirsty, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Jesus attaches himself here with Isaiah chapter 12, saying, I am the salvation. I am the spring of living water. I am the spring from which to draw salvation from. The springs of salvation had come in Christ. 
And he came to call these people, even these people with worldly hearts who wanted him dead, he come, came to call these people to salvation, to trust in him. The Lord had provided once again, just as he provided so long ago in the wilderness. He provides for this worldly people, these ones whose deeds were evil, who were not willing to do his will, who were not willing to believe in him and who did not believe in him. And to the whole crowd that gathered that day for the offering, even all the Jews who were seeking to kill him and silence him and get rid of him and send him away, Jesus declares, or more accurately, Jesus commands, come to me, believe in me, I will give you life. And from your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Salvation is found in me and in me alone. I am the Lord's provision for you. No longer will you be worldly. No longer will you be evil. No longer will you be in the dark. No longer will you walk around in exile. The Lord has provided a Savior for you. So come, drink, and believe in me, and live. Although the Lord was angry with them, he detested their sin and, and their rejection of his Son. He has provided forgiveness for them in his Son, Jesus Christ. And he commands them to trust in him and to not be afraid that the Lord would also become their salvation for those who will the will of God, for those who believe in Christ. Christ has revealed himself and has come to save, and his time had come. You may find yourself making assumptions about God and about Christ, and that's normal. Like I said earlier, we all do it. We all try to make assumptions because it's a whole lot easier than reading through God's word, isn't it? But our assumptions will lead us astray. And our assumptions will take tiny truths and twist them to believe a lie about us. To tell you that you can't be redeemed. To tell you that Christ didn't come to redeem you either. But look back again to the word of God and what it says. Look back to the reality that Christ came to proclaim. And leave your assumptions behind and believe in the one who was sent from God to be your provision. Trust his word and believe in Jesus. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And praise the Lord, for he has done great things. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word and its truth. We pray that you would reveal to us our own assumptions about you, our assumptions that aren't based on reality, but Lord, our assumptions that are based on our own understanding. Lord, we pray that you would help us to have a proper understanding of you, that it would be one informed by scripture, that it would be one based on reality and based on your word and truth. Help us, Lord, to believe in you each and every day of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.